Hi everybody, welcome to Sail Faster, the podcast for those who obsess about sailing faster. Um, we have completed about seven or eight episodes of Sail Faster so far. I think I've got two more in the edit room and more to come over the next few weeks. Thank you for listening and for subscribing to the series. I'm really thrilled that they've been of interest and use to so many sailors out there. Um, thanks to those who've sent me comments and ideas. You've got to keep them coming. You can email me at pete at sailfaster.net or just DM me at Facebook or Instagram where you can search for, follow and like Sailfaster Podcast. On today's episode, I'm really thrilled to say that we are joined by one of America's top sailors, Olympian and award-winning author, Carol Newman Cronin. Carol's really well known internationally as a member of the 2004 US Olympic sailing team that won two races on Athens' beautiful Saronic Gulf in that year. She's a multi-time winner of the Snipe North Americans, a winner of the Snipe Women's Worlds with her longtime teammate Kim Carantz. She's a winner of the Snipe Nationals and the Rolex International Women's Keelback Championship and winner of several women's match racing championships with various skippers. And I think I already mentioned she is an award-winning author. She's written multiple books about sailing. I think another one's on the way already. And her award-winning article about her Olympic experience has got to be read. It's a really, really great uh, great read. Um, you can find out much more about Carol, her stellar sailing experience, and her writings at carolnewmancronin.com. That's a URL that I'll put in the episode description. Um, Carol, welcome to Sailfaster. Thanks so much, Pete, for having me. It's, it's great to be here. I'm not sure where to start, really. There's so much to talk about, given your background. Tell us a little bit about that Olympic experience. What, what was that like? I, mean, I love the, the, the comment you made about the fact that rather than calling out your boat number when you checked it, you called in USA as your country. And I, 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 that really resonated with it. That was the, just the culmination of a lot of uh, hard work and experience that all built up to that moment. And, and uh, if you want, I can, I can talk a little bit about some of the, some of the kind of key moments looking back on, on um, growing up as a sailor and how, how it got me there, if that's helpful. Oh, I'd love that. Perfect. Go ahead. Great. Well, I, I was um, first on a sailboat at 10 days old. Um, with my parents, who were uh, very anxious to take their brand new boat that had arrived the same day that I did out, uh, 32-footer, and in Annapolis, actually. Um, and uh, so just couldn't, couldn't really escape it and actually had no wish to. I, I just loved, loved the time we spent on the water um, as a family and then uh, grew into sailing with other people as well as a teenager, as you do, because... Um, you don't want to be around your parents anymore. And I think one of the most significant changes for me um, was college sailing. That was a whole eye opener of, and we weren't, you know, it wasn't even nearly as professional as it is now. Uh, but just that eye opener of sailing small, lightweight boats. I grew up sailing much heavier, heavier boats, um, two people, uh, and everybody wants to, wants to win um, in, the, in the local sailing that I did as a kid. Uh, which is which was great. Um, there were a lot of people out who were just going out for a sale and happened happened to be going racing at the same time. So the college sailing really really opened my eyes to the possibilities of competition and and the fact that I was actually pretty good at it. And so that was that was great. Um, after I graduated, I was lucky enough to um, step back into the snipe class as a crew at at a very high level, um, sailing with Ed Adams, who was a turned into a huge mentor. I like to, I like to say that was my, my master's degree in one design sailing. Um, <laughs> I sailed with him for 
only a couple of years in the snipe, but then also sailed with him in the interclub dinghy and, and he later coached us in the England. Um, so just a great, a great relationship. And there were, there were a lot of other people, um, along that path as well. Um, but after sailing the snipe for several years as a crew, I decided I wanted to start steering and that gave me the confidence to then set up my Olympic campaign in 2001 on my own after sailing with a lot of different, very accomplished women who then became my competitors at the Olympic trials in 2004. So uh, it's kind of a strange um, coming up through the through the front of the boat, I guess, is a little bit of a strange route to steering. But but uh, it, thanks to a lot of, of support, uh, it really worked for me. Yeah, Carol, go, go back to um, when you went to college sailing and the difference. How long did it take you to sort of catch up? Was it sort of the first time you went out to train or did it take a while to catch up? And I went to, Con- to Connecticut college and uh, there were people who had gone there specifically to sail and were already known to the coach. Um, I showed up as saying, well, maybe I'll try this out. Not realizing that it would be just the best part of college <laughs> of all. And so the first day I went to practice, I actually went out with a coach and uh, managed to fall out of the coach boat uh, when I went to <laughs> grab a, a mark, you know, and kind of got off balance and, you know, was probably over eager freshman at that point, <laughs> was definitely an over eager freshman at that point. Uh, leaned out of the boat to grab, help grab the mark, fell in the water. He had to fish me out. Now that, you know, was not a very auspicious beginning. Um, <laughs> but eventually by sort of, um, you know, I kept showing up and kept showing up. I sailed with some people who weren't that great. Uh, and then eventually I got, um, I got a job, a job. I got to crew for, um, the guy who was then the captain of the team my sophomore Mm. year. And that was a real step forward into, oh, this is what sailing at a high level is all about. And this is how much preparation you have to put in. And this is how much practice you have to do. And this is how, if you really work together well, the results are better than either of you could, could accomplish on your own. Carol, I, I, you talked about shifting from crew to driving. Um, was that was that an easy shift? Um, did it come naturally, or or what happened there? That's a that's a great question. Uh, it did not happen naturally. Uh, it was an easy shift once I found the right boat. Um, I actually started off in the Europe dinghy uh, steering as a single handed sailor back in the early nineties, and I hated it. <laughs> and what I thought was, oh, well, I really like crewing rather than steering. And what I finally realized when I did a little steering in the snipe was I just don't like sailing by myself. And so and I love steering um, with the right crew. And so uh, so that was a little bit of a step in the in the learning process. Uh, I went back to crewing. Um, there was a, a period in the late 90s when uh, World Sailing had decided that the next women's medal that was going to be added to the Olympic family for 2004 was going to be in in women's match racing. And so I was lucky enough to be part of a number of different really high level teams that were four person teams. And so then when they shifted gears to fleet racing in a three person yingling, I, it was sort of like musical chairs. I looked around and I was the fourth member of all these, all these teams, but there wasn't really a place for me in a three person boat. And that's when I decided to to buy my own boat, start my own campaign. Hmm. Um, and it was it was really a a, a huge uh, step into the unknown, and and more of a well, I'm just going to try this and see how it goes, rather than a a, um, 
I can't say I really thought that we were going to win the trials at that point. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a it was a big a big step, um, a leap of faith is the is the word I'm looking for. So you have obviously a ton of experience um, double handed, but also at Olympics now you you are triple handed. Is there do you have any secrets for success that you'd share for double handed and also triple handed? Maybe the differences between them. Well, I think there there are differences between them in terms of how the the team dynamics work, uh, but I'd say oh, yeah. one commonality uh, is get the best crew that you can possibly find, and I don't mean just the most sailing experience. I think one of the things I learned in the course of my um, of my career, specifically with the Olympics, but also in the the 14 years now that I've been in the snipe with um, Kim Carantz, who's a huge part of my success, um, is that there are people who make you better as a, as a sailboat racer, and there are people who don't. And it's not a right or wrong thing. It's not a, a, a you know, there's nothing you can really, you, you can work toward better with everyone, but there are people who bring out the best in you. And Kim is, is at the top of my list for that. Um, and I think a lot of it, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, we could talk for the whole podcast about this. There's a lot of pieces to it. Mm. Uh, but if you find that person, hold on to them with both hands and just try to stick with it because the, the less you have to think about, uh, the, we will talk about regatta prep, but the less you have to think about, well, who am I going to be with and how is it going to be? And what do, what holes do I need to fill or do I expect them to fill? The better, the more comfortable you are with somebody you really enjoy sailing with, the better you're going to do. And yeah, that, that makes sense. So, so with Kim, um, was it, and um, were you thrown together by accident or did you, was it sort oh, of no. trial and error that you came to, uh, that? No, I first met her when we were both snipe crews. I met her in the line for the shower, basically. <laughs> but anyway, we got to chatting and I realized, wow, she's really pretty cool and, and has some good things to say about sailing and about snipe crewing. And I actually asked her to be part of my um, J22 team uh, for the 2001, I think it was, uh, Women's Killboat Championship, which was in Annapolis that year. And she said, oh, sorry, I'd love to, but I'm sailing with somebody else. And so that's kind of how, so she was on my list of, of um, people I wanted to go sailing with. Um, we, so we did a little bit of yingling sailing, actually, as part of my second campaign um, before I decided to retire in 2007. And then uh, in 2010, when I bought a snipe, I asked her if she'd sail with me. And I've done... I would say 99.9% of the regattas I've sailed have been with her ever since then. And this is your uh, sort of active class right now in snipes, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take I'm going to take away from this that that uh, relationship you have with your crew, especially on double-handed boats, is absolutely critical to success. Presumably, you can have a fabulous sailor with you, but if you don't quite click and they don't improve your sailing. Uh, that's obviously suboptimal. I'm I'm just taking taking away from what you were saying. Exactly, and I I think um, one of the differences we were talking about between double-handed and triple-handed, and even four four-person crews and on up from there, is the more people you have on the boat, the less, uh, the more specialized those jobs can be. And again, not just in terms of who puts the pole up or who trims the jib sheet or whatever, but in terms of 
interacting with the skipper and filling in the blanks because we all have blanks my my big uh hang up is starting i'm not a very good starter and uh as kim has sailed with me more and more she's learned to fill in the blanks of this is where i think the starting line is which is a huge help and if there were three people on the boat maybe the the middle person could do that and she could focus on trimming the jib but instead she's got to do that and trim the jib perfectly and count down the time <laughs> so so there's uh there's less room for specialization you have to be a little bit more of a multitasker okay i'm not sure i believe you about starting i mean you don't you don't <laughs> win a couple races the Olympics. Ask, ask him she could be your next victim and she'll tell you what's happening there at the start then why Oh, I'm, also, um, I'm also super glad that I, I find starts in big fleets uh, very intimidating. So I'm really, really enjoying well, think, somebody else. Think, um, well, two two funny comments for you. The first is every coach I've ever had, except for my husband, who's also an excellent coach, has said, oh, I really wish you'd steered in college. It's like, okay, as a 40-year-old, that's really a helpful comment. Um <laughs> It's just, and the reason for that is the repetition that you get in college sailing of starts uh, and mark roundings and blah blah blah. But as a as as a crew, mm. you don't you don't really learn that um, in terms of the time and distance. And yeah. that's my big challenge is I I do not judge well where the line is. And mm. so if I'm starting in a row of boats who are all on the line, I I do a pretty good job of lining my bow up. But if I'm starting by myself, I don't do a very good job. Mm. So that's that's my weakness. So, Carol, I, I know you're writing an article for Sail Magazine about how uh, small boats are fantastic preparation for performing well in, in large boats. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's. I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't actually started it yet, but I have an idea for the for the opening, which is explaining that while I grew up on uh, cruising boats, and if you look at my childhood and my experience, you would say, oh, well, she learned to sail on a 38-footer. Well, what I remember is going out in the Dyer Dow, which is a nine and a half foot sailing dinghy, first with my dad, and then wonderfully when I had enough skill, uh, and learning to come alongside, so make a landing, as we called it, on the the big boat. Uh, And it was so much easier to understand the effects of the wind and the waves and oh i'm i'm luffing into the wind now on a smaller boat and i think that's a that's an extreme example but um there's a reason why kids like going out on smaller boats is because they can they can feel and see and sense so much more easily without the oh there's a winch and you have to crank the jib sheet in and you can't you're distracted by the fact that that's hard as opposed to what are you really doing with the sail um, so everything's simpler, there are fewer lines, and there's more direct effect of each action on small boats. And I think that's why they make a really valuable learning platform for cruisers, for racers, for anybody. Um, I knew a sailmaker years ago who would tell people, who would tell all his clients, oh, you want to get better? Go buy a laser. And, the, and these are all, again, big boat um, big boat, boat owners who are trying to improve as a as a six or eight person PHRF crew crew in the local Wednesday night series. And he'd say, go buy a laser and learn to sail the laser better. He said only one person ever took him up on it. (laughs) I suppose on small boats, things happen a lot faster. 
um, in terms of the boat reacting a lot faster, competitors reacting to that a lot faster. So you, you have less time to, I don't know, less time to think perhaps on a, versus the bigger boat. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, different different types of dinghies have different reaction times as well. Uh, one of the things I didn't like about the Europe compared to the Snipe is that it was it was almost too quick for me. I, I felt like I couldn't react fast enough because it's a very lightweight, speedy dinghy, whereas the Snipe is a little bit uh, heavier and slower to react, uh, almost like a 15-foot keelboat in some ways in light air. And so it matches my, my reaction time better. Um, so I, I don't think you can be quite that general about small boats react faster, mm -hmm. but I think the point I'm trying to make is that the connection between your actions and the waves and the wind are much more obvious on a small boat. That's a great bit of advice, isn't it, to uh, to get onto small boats, to, to have that sort of feel and figure out how to translate that back up to um, to a, a larger boat. Carol, let's talk about operation you go into for a, a major regatta. Yeah, it, well, it depends a little bit on the on the regatta itself. Um, but if you're talking about a, a world championship or an Olympic trials or something like that, um, obviously you you kind of put your financial blinders on and you do you do whatever you can to be ready to go. And my goal um, seldom achieved, but we did we did definitely achieve it for the the 2004 Olympic trials was to show up for the first day of sailing feeling like we could have done nothing else to prepare. And it is an unbelievably powerful feeling when you can do that. It's like I said, it's very rare because you, normally you have jobs and, and family and, and many other obligations that are, that are interfering. You can't usually put a championship, even a major championship as your absolute first priority. Um, but when you do, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And the, the things that are always on my list uh, for a, a major championship are comfortable housing, access to my own choice of food, and, and teeing those up so that you don't have to think about them. Um, and you're not sleeping on couches and you're not being woken up at two in the morning um, because that's as the regatta goes on, that's really important. So just so that's kind of where we start from. If, if Kim and I decide to go to a, a snipe world, say uh, we've been to been to several together. Um, I call her the housing czar because she does an incredible job of finding nice places to stay Um that make it as easy as possible. One of my priorities is I always like to get to the boat park early each day. She would prefer to not get there quite as early as I do. So one of the things that we try to do is is find a place that's within walking distance so that uh, so that I can go and she can go you know an hour later or when it, when it whenever it's really sensible to go as opposed to when I show up. Um, I just like I love being in a boat park early in the morning when very few people are around and just kind of, you know, what your adrenaline's kind of hyped up and, and uh, you see what kind of day it is. And it's just it's just a I just really enjoy that um, as you, you know, as you go to events, you realize what what you need and what's important to you. Somebody else, it could be something else that's important to them. But I think the the key is to uh to sort of try to make a, a list of priorities of if I'm to do well in this regatta, what, what are my keys to success? And one of them for me is always um, easy housing, easy transportation and good food. And that's the starting point. Is there a, do you have a sort of a calendar that you look at 
um, weeks in advance, like a project plan to say, hey, we're going to be there in 10 weeks. So week one, we need to be doing this for prep. Week two, we need to get housing. Week three, blah, blah, blah. Or is it just really a checklist you go down? I'm just curious about, about how that works for you. Well, I think it's it's um, it's a little bit different for each regatta. Um, when you talk about ten weeks, to me, that's not nearly long enough in advance uh, to start planning. Uh, if we're going to go to a world championship, we make the decision often a year out, and we don't actively start doing anything. Although, again, Kim would start looking at housing options and looking mm. at the weather, so she's already thinking about what am I going to pack and. I'm already thinking about, uh, do we have to put the boat in the container? Are we chartering? All those things, the earlier you start, the better. And when you start talking about um, international events, there's there's just a lot of details that have to be checked off the list. So she and I, again, because we've done this so many times, we've kind of developed a, a division of labor that works really well. Uh, but yes, I would say there's, a, there's an important checklist. Um, I, didn't even talk before I talked about housing and I talked about food, but I didn't even talk about the whole boat situation. And mm. that's a huge key to success is, is setting yourself up with good equipment. Um, and there's a lot of, of challenges to that at any, in any class. And I, I tend to prefer, I know I'm going to perform better if I'm sailing my own equipment versus chartering, but shipping snipes around the world has gotten really expensive. So that's become a little bit prohibitive. And then it's a question too of, of balancing your expectations with your your results. It's like, is it really worth shipping my boat halfway around the world to finish 25th at a world championship? <laughs> and that's a question you have to answer before you know before you know what your before you can balance the the expenses with the expectations. So the charter boat versus your own boat. Given that these are one design boats, I know there's some you know variation in in quality and and so on and so forth is that a, is that more of a mental thing than a real thing <laughs> excellent question <laughs> the um there's definitely a large mental uh piece of it and um i've tried to work around it um but there's also the snipe is a bad example well, a bad or a good example because each boat is different people rig their boats differently and there's so many different ways to go fast in a snipe but that it becomes very personal in how you set your boat up and what your priorities are for, oh, well, we're a lightweight team. And so we need to, we need to have more throw on the vang, for example, um, a Brazilian team that's, that's up to weight and, and, you know, 30 years younger than we are, they might not be playing the vang so much. So, so we might get to Brazil and find a charter boat that has half the throw that, that we're from our boat. Mm. And so that's a specific example. And then you multiply that by the 16 controls that Kim is in charge of (laughs) and the one control that I get to handle, which is the main sheet. (laughs) And, uh, and all of a sudden that's how it, it blossoms into this. Oh, it's really nice to just reach down and know that you're, you know, know how much you have to ease or pull on a particular line without really thinking about it. The other thing I want to ask you um, was about getting the boat park early. I thought that was really interesting um, for what it's worth, I, I have the same thing that even on a Wednesday night race or certainly on the uh, Eddie Regatta we do locally, I am at the boat. At, I'm ashamed to say how early I'm at the boat, way before my, my any of my crews there. Um, for me, it's you just... Don't, sort of, it, you don't it, have to be ashamed to say that to me because I'd probably <laughs> beat you. <laughs> I don't know. I feel comfortable to reveal that. <laughs> but, but it sounds for you that it, it's sort of, 
you talked about breathing it in. It's it's getting in tune with the the day and the conditions and what kind of day it's going to be on the water. Is that is that fair? Yes, it's. I don't think. Um... What I've realized over the years is I don't think you can, I can really justify it from a performance angle. It's just pure joy and uh, puts me in a good frame of mind. But I don't think that, I think you, it, a lot of people can definitely get to the boat park too early. And I've had this, these discussions with, and leave the dock too early for that matter. You know, we had this funny joke in the, in the snipe class, again, because we know our competitors so well that that okay, we're gonna leave the we're gonna leave the dock as soon as so and so leaves the dock, which could be half an hour before somebody else leaves the dock. But that's just we will we know that they're gonna leave a little earlier than we want to leave, and most people are gonna leave a little later than we want to leave. So finding your own comfort zone with with every aspect of a race day, starting from when do I want to show up at the boat park and when does my crew want to get there, and if they're radically different, you find a way around that because. There's no reason why, um, you know, the, you don't want somebody to be starting off the race day in a bad mood because they had to conform to the skipper's crazy idea of being there at sunrise, yeah. <laughs> which I've done. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We, I had Mike Beasley and uh, and Jason Curry on um, a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about um, t- two factors really interesting, actually. W- one was, um, I think Jason said that the generally or quite often the people who win the regatta are the people who are first to the dock in the morning. <laughs> and and Mike talked about the intimidation factor, making sure that your boat is absolutely up to condition so that when people do come down the dock in the morning, they look at your boat and they realize, oh, they've got themselves organized and sorted. I thought that was a couple of interesting yes. uh, points that they made. Yeah, I'll, I'll add two things to that. One is um, the... Uh, Sally Barco, who went to the 2008 Olympics in the Yingling, she actually bought my old boat when I retired. And one of the things she said to me later was that she was very surprised that everything, all the rigging was basically stock for the boat, that I hadn't re-rigged everything. Because I guess I had a reputation for tweaking everything because I was always working on the boat. (laughs) So what she didn't realize is that I wasn't actually changing very much i was just maybe changing out a line here and there or or the length of a line or something like that but the stock <laughs> the stock um layout deck layout was so good on those on the abbott built boats that uh that i didn't i wasn't actually making a lot of tweaks that that she had to get used to that's very interesting that they assumed that you had yeah, yeah. um was that because you did pay a, a, a lot of intention detail what, what as context what, what if you know i've talked to uh, um, many sailors now all of them with much more experience than i have and i suppose i'm looking for you know the magic bullet the two or three things that take you from yeah. fleet to winning but it's more about um meticulous application of the fundamentals it, you you sound like you're just given what your um, fellow sailor talked about the, uh, the about the tweaking, you you must have gone into enormous detail with the uh, preparation of your boat. Yes, I had a um, a brief uh, career as a rigger, as a sailboat rigger, ah. and so I brought a lot of experience to the to the boat park that a lot of people just don't have, as far as how to rig stuff and re-rig stuff and fix stuff if it breaks and jury rig it if you can't fix it and that kind of thing. And so that was a that was a big part of my success. And also, I hate 
breaking things on the race course because there's just no there's there's usually no excuse for it it's usually something that you either forgot to do or you didn't do well enough uh and so so to me that's that's a huge goal is is preventative maintenance and and uh and staying ahead of of stuff like that so i'll tell you a funny story from uh october of 2023 uh at the snipe north americans where we finished second uh we were winning going into the last day and the last day turned out to be 20 to 30 knots of breeze uh, which is really pretty much too much for a snipe <laughs> um, and the only race that they got off we were uh downwind with the pole up which you're not supposed to do in over 25 knots of breeze in the snipe uh, and the breeze picked up to about 30 and I think they had a puff to like 38, um, which is just terrifying wow. to even think about. Uh, yeah. but anyway, I, I said to Kim, I think we should douse the pole cause, cause I felt not very much in control at that point. And unfortunately the time that I chose to say, let's douse when it, it's a, there's a, um, the pole lives on the boom. And there's a there's a shock cord piece that comes back that retracts the the pole against the boom, and it lives on the port side of the boom so that you can launch more easily on starboard uh, for the first for the first rounding usually if you're going on to reach. So anyway, so we're on we're on starboard. Sorry for all this background. That's good. That's good. We're on starboard. Uh, she goes to douse, and I can't trim the main in enough to line the pole up with the boom. So that it, which is the secret to success, is to is to get the two parallel, so that there's no problem. And so the pole comes into the mainsail, to the back of the mainsail, instead of sliding back along the, the backside of the boom like it's supposed to. And at that point, <laughs> we didn't quite realize this at the time, but at that point, the shock cord piece that's supposed to be attached to the end of the pole came out. So the shock cord's all the way at the back end of the boom and the pole is free floating, you know, this, this now eight foot piece of aluminum that's now dangling down in the water in way too much breeze and still yeah. attached to the boat with various lines. So yeah. we ended up cutting it free and losing the pole and, and blah, 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 finished the race, finished second at the, for the regatta, which we were, we felt really good about. So, so kind of in hindsight, so mad at myself, but also chuckling because, you know, what else can you do is I had spent the last six months worrying about that shock cord breaking <laughs> and trying to find, you know, a replacement for it, but I couldn't quite find the right size. And then I didn't have time to replace it. And so I spent all this time worrying about something and it ended up being something completely different. That was the problem. <laughs> I I heard from other people that the um, they uh, other people has been on this podcast have learned from top sailors to think about what could go wrong, um, yeah, and yeah. to really spend some time thinking about that because that ends your day early on the race course. And it's not there's the obvious things that people think about, but to go through sort of a checklist and every time to make sure that everything is in place or that you have a uh, some way of rigging a spare of something is uh, probably not something that everybody everybody goes through. So the the best way to do that to to learn what the list is for each class because it's very different for each class is to go and talk to the people who have been in the class the longest because the best way that we all learn and the most memorable ways we all learn are when we make mistakes. 
somebody else loses their rig on the on the on the course and it's you know it's gone the next day for you but for them that memory lasts forever and whatever lessons you can learn from that then you take to your next regatta and your next regatta and your next regatta so by the time you build up a few years in the class then you have oh yeah that back in 1996 at the north americans you know this happened and here's what you shouldn't do <laughs> yeah. so that's that's yeah. the way to learn i think that's excellent advice uh, one thing i want to talk about is specifically boat speed and um when you feel you're not up to target speed what are you doing and what are you thinking about is there anything particular is there a is there a loop that you go through um to try and identify what's going on so boat speed is a really i mean we could talk about that all day long and my feeling is there's not one simple do this and you'll be fast. Uh, it's a whole bunch of different things. And that's why you see people who, I have this experience in the snipe all the time. Um, I think of Augie Diaz because uh, we'll be sailing along, lined up with him, either racing or before the start. We'll be lined up and lined up and lined up and holding even and holding even and holding even. And then the wind goes down a knot or up a knot and he takes off hmm. and it's the tiny transitions that he's doing because he hmm. he sails the boat so much and has sailed the boat so much and is really good too um but it's not something that i can look at him and say oh i should be doing that better it's more uh the just the little tiny changes that he's making probably without mostly without thinking about them hmm. uh that that set him apart and uh, I see this all the time with, with um, people who are starting in a new class where they don't have the basics. But then once they get the basics, there's a whole nother leap of comfort level. And some people, you know, some people climb that faster than others. But I, I don't think it's, um, I really think it's a culmination of a, a whole bunch of really small things. And there's some things that you really have to kind of check off before you can even start thinking about the smaller ones uh like sail trim and and working with your trimmer if you're on a if you're on a keel boat and you're not able to do it yourself um there's some other simple rules that i've learned about you know the which you've probably already heard which are when in doubt ease it out mm. um particularly with a mainsail um i once lost a a snipe uh actually at a world championship lost a snipe race because i this these people were kind of coming closer and closer. We were winning the race. They were coming closer and closer and I didn't know what to do. And I kept trimming the main harder and harder and harder. <laughs> and they were going slower, you know, we're going slower and slower. So that's <laughs> a, that's a good one. Um, the other one, uh, we used to joke on the Yingling that um, I, as the skipper could be replaced with a piece of shock cord for the most part. <laughs> and so, and to me, what that, what you translate that to is don't steer too much. Um, don't, especially downwind, this is more of a, I'm better at this upwind because there's more feel on the rudder, but downwind, it's very easy to just, without even realizing it, just keep moving the rudder, which is actually slow. Uh, and so I learned to lock the tiller extension on the deck. I was watching the, uh, New York Yacht Club's, um, Melges IC37, I think they do a championship for a couple of years up uh, in Newport. And they had a couple of cameras on the on the boat um, internally, and I was watching downwind especially, and observing how it's very noticeable how the tiller moved a couple of millimeters one direction, 
couple of millimeters the other direction, but basically it was still that was great, great learning. Uh, just watching the, yeah. the you know the best sailors just doing doing exactly that. Yep. So those are, those are a couple things that that um, I've learned over the years. Also, uh, everybody's sense of what they're comfortable with as far as sailing attitude, I guess, is one way to put it. But just the angle of heel and the little adjust, you know, how many little adjustments you can make in 30 seconds kind of thing, whether you just want to just want to settle in and, and have no distractions or whether you want the jib sheet being eased and pulled and eased and pulled all the time. Uh, that's something that everybody has to kind of learn for themselves or what their comfort level is. And that goes back again to the longer you sail with somebody, the, the more you can take that sort of stuff for granted that, that Kim will know, Oh, you know, Carol wants the jib sheet eased uh, uh, two millimeters because she's about to hit a wave. And I, I know without her having to say it to me. And that's something that only comes with a lot of experience and, and, uh, and the sort of the person personalization of sailing fast. On keel boats, seems to me you know, heel angle is is critical. Uh, were you very aware of that on on dinghies about a sense of whether you had the right heel angle? It's critical in small boats. The heel angle question, uh, particularly in the snipe, because there's a hard chine, and so whether the chine is in or out of the water is a huge difference in terms mm. of of. And I, I don't need to bore all your listeners with the details of the snipe but but that has taught me to be very concerned uh and realize that's a very critical adjustment whereas around bottom yingling a degree or two at any angle of heel was not a big deal um but in the snipe there's about a there's about a 10 degree window where that's absolutely crucial uh, both upwind and downwind Mm. and so i've learned to be learned to be much better about it the other thing i've noticed is that when i've been away from sailing for a while and i jump back in the boat i tend to sail much more healed because there's a little bit of a wider groove and then as we get more comfortable and i'm and i'm because because healing to windward is slow right because you're digging that weather chine in the water so so my my default is to heal a little bit more to leeward so that you have a little bit more range you don't have to be quite as precise in your heel angle mm. uh, to avoid digging the chine in, and that's been a, that's been a good lesson. And then as I get more comfortable, and I've been in the boat, been practicing, or even halfway through a regatta, I find I'm sailing flatter because I don't need as much, quite as much of a margin. Um, hey, Carol, I can't let you go without asking you about the 2004 Olympics in <laughs> the beautiful city of Athens on the Saronic Gulf. Um, are you prepared to talk about that? I would um, actually refer people to my website because there's an excellent award-winning article about it. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> that. That starts off by saying, it took me 10 years to write this and I'm only going to say it once. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, so so what's the website? I'll, I'll definitely put it in the comments, but just uh, tell us what the website is. It's Carolyn. And also... You're, um, you're quite a review of books as well, aren't you? I, I, I bought a, uh, a, a book from there uh, earlier, actually. Yes, and, and write them as well. I'm working on my fifth, uh, my, my sixth book right now. It's a, it just came back from the editor, so that's, that's been exciting. And uh, have a seventh in the queue. And all the details of all these can, again, be found on your website, can't they? Yes, yep. Brilliant. Too much detail. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not the sailor's bit. <laughs> 
the title of that section is where books meet boats, isn't it? And and I think that's really interesting because there aren't really many good books about sailing. Yes, and there's and there's some that include sailing that that frankly I wish they hadn't because uh, it's not <laughs> it does not read ring true. I I have been known to uh, to email authors and offer myself as a as a first reader for their sailing sections. <laughs> Do they take you up on it? No, I shouldn't say that. Some have. But uh, Carol, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you as I thought it would be. Um, oh, it's been great. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You, uh, you're a fascinating uh, guest. So thank you for joining uh, Sailfaster today. Thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and uh, good luck with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>